bring, bring two. Hey, okay. Good morning, everybody. So, we're in Advent, but we're gonna, we're gonna stick to our regular hymn schedule and we'll start a new Christmas and Advent hymn next week, since next week's December. So, TLH 470. Rise again, ye lion-hearted, saints of early Christendom. Whither is your strength departed? Whither gone your martyrdom? Lo, love's light is on them, glory's flame upon them. And their will to die doth quell In the Lord and Prince of Hell. These the men by fear unshaken, Facing danger dauntlessly, These no witching lust hath taken, Lost that lures to vanity, Mid the roar and rattle Of tumultuous battle. In desire they soar above All that earth would have them love. Great of heart, they know no turning. Honor gold, they laugh to scorn. Quenched desires within them burning, By no earthly passion torn. Mid the lion's roaring, Songs of praise outpouring. Joyously they take their stand On the arena's bloody sand. Would to God that I might even As the martyred saints of old with the helping hand of heaven, steadfast stand in battle bold. O my God, I pray thee, in the combat stay me. Grant that I may ever be Loyal, staunch, and true to Thee. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. Stir up your power, O Lord, and come, that by your protection we may be rescued from the threatening perils of our sins and saved by your mighty deliverance. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Happy Advent. I can't, I, thanks. <laughs> can't believe it's here. And you too, Tony All right, uh, the verse for this week is two verses. It's a little bit long, but it's really, really, really good. You'll see why. Isaiah chapter 43, verses 25 and 26. Let's speak this together. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us contend together. State your case that you may be acquitted. Okay, let's take a look here. I, who is the I? Yes. Uh, but who? Not the Father. Not the Father. The Son. God the Son. I am He who blots out your transgressions. And you, when you hear the word blot, what is it that you think of? 
Yeah, soak them up, right? I, like cleaning your carpet, you know? You blot it, you don't rub it. So, but the, the idea is that it's, a, it's cleaning, and it's the kind of cleaning where it's going to soak it up. That's why this is important. I am he who blots. That is, it's Christ, because I'm the one who soaks this, I'm the one who cleans your sins by soaking them up into myself. Um, in, in another passage in Isaiah, he says, Lo, your sins are as... Well, first, though, they are as scarlet, and I will make them as white as snow. Right, so this idea that you're going to be cleaned, uh, and I'll be the one to do it. Think about, uh, there's a liturgical day, and I'll even give you a really big hint, in Holy Week, where this idea of Jesus cleaning is, is sort of the theme. Do you remember which day in Holy Week? Yeah, Maundy Thursday, because what is the reading from, from John? Washing the disciples' feet. And Peter says, no, heaven forbid, Lord, that you would wash me. And the Lord says, well, if I don't wash you, you don't have a part with me. And then he says, well, okay, then wash all of me, not just my feet. Like, Cardinal washed both feet. Yeah, okay, I didn't know that. Sure, that's right. I saw that. Huh. I think it maybe should be the other way around. What did you say? I went to College of Cardinals on Holy Week worse the Pope's feet. I think. I think they did. I think I remember seeing that once. Well but I could be corrected. <laughs> well, I I don't know enough to correct on this one, so um <coughs> But the point, you know, of Maundy Thursday and, and why on Maundy Thursday with the institution of the Lord's Supper and then the washing of the feet and then the betrayal, why is it about cleaning? Because this is what he's doing. Because it's the fulfillment of the Old Testament passages when he talks about, hey, I'm the one who's going to take your sins. I'm the one who's going to clean you up. I'm the one who's going to wash you, which is why he can say, unless I wash you, you have no part with me which you'll see in just a minute. He who blots out your transgressions, for whose sake? For goodness sake. For whose sake does he blot out your transgressions? For his sake. What does that mean? That he's doing it for his sake. He loves us so much. He loves you so much that... Even though you don't deserve it and haven't earned it and haven't asked for it, he's going to do it anyway. Why? Because I'm doing it for my own sake. I'm, I'm doing it out of grace. That's grace. If he does it for his sake, it's grace. Because if he does it for your sake, well, you're not going to get anything good. Remember, God isn't fair. So if you get what you deserve, which is what is fair, then he can't be gracious and merciful. In order for God to be gracious and merciful, he has to be unfair, because he has to be willing to say, well, you deserve this, but I'm not going to do it to you. Okay? So he does it for his own sake. It's not about you. This is, this is the whole point of the Christian faith. It's not about you. Uh, the sacraments are not Burger King. You don't get to come in and have them your way. Uh, this, this isn't something that's casual. This is something that is real. And it's not happening because you're the center of the world. It's happening because he is the center of the world and he wants to bring you to him, not the other way around. And I will not remember your sins. I thought God is all-knowing. Isn't he omniscient? How does he not remember something then? He doesn't hold them against you, sure. Hey, good, very good Bible answer. He separates them from the east is from the west. But what does that mean? Uh, yes. But if he remembered them, then when they separated the sheep from the goats, then you're going to be a goat. Okay, sure, yes, if he remembers them. What I'm trying to drive at here, you're all right. You're all saying very, very good, correct things. And you're just, you're stopping a little bit short of where I want you to go. And where I want you to go is this. 
God can't remember things that don't exist. So it's not like, you know, we talk about forgive and forget, and we laugh because it's impossible for you to forget. It's a nice pithy statement, which is why forgiveness isn't forgetting, it's living as if you had forgotten, which is in some sense what the Lord does for you. But it's even greater than that because when you forgive your neighbor, you live like you don't remember what your neighbor did, even though you do remember. When God forgives you, well, it's true. You never, when, you know, when someone really stabs you in the back or screws you over, you never forget that. Even if you can move away from it, it's always there. You always remember it. You can't forget it even if you try. But the way that it works with God is that when your sins are forgiven, they don't exist. What happens to your, the problem that is given to Jesus? It's destroyed. It's gone. That's why you give your sins to Jesus. They don't exist. How can God remember something that doesn't exist? But there is an even deeper thing. Remember that remembrance is not the same as recollecting. So in some sense, yes, the Lord does not recollect your sins, but he also doesn't judge your sins because there's nothing to judge. So think about the last day then, when he comes and he opens the book to cast judgment. What's he going to say to you? Nothing here. No, nothing's here. It's like he writes his book in his book with red pen, like I do. He's got his special red pen, and he writes with his red pen, and then all of a sudden, this book is laying out, on the altar, and the lamb's blood goes on it. And then he you know, holds it up and goes, oh, well, rats, I shouldn't have written it in red ink because now everything's red. Now I can't, there's nothing here now. You see that? It's, it's washed away. Yes, Morris? Uh, if he says, I will not remember uh, your sins, isn't that the ultimate forgiveness then? Yes, because remembrance is always an act. Recollecting is a thought, so you recollect things that happened. In the English language, recollection and remembrance are pretty much synonymous, but they really aren't theologically. Recollecting is, I'm thinking about something that happened and I have a memory of it. But remembering is bringing to fruition and bringing to incarnation, uh, bringing to reality something. So when the Lord remembers his promise, it's not that he's recollecting, oh yeah, that's right, I did make that promise. It's him actually acting upon it, bringing it to fruition, incarnating his promise in its fulfillment. So when he says, I'm not going to remember your sins, it's also saying everything that I'm supposed to do to your sins and everything that, I'm, that I have promised to bring against your sins, I won't. Put me in remembrance. This is great. Do this in remembrance of me. Put me in remembrance. It's not about you. It's about me. I'm the one who will remember. I am the one who will bring to fruition. Let us contend together. Hey, let's reason together. State your case. Why? That you may be acquitted. You're not going to court to argue because you worry about whether or not you're going to get off. It's not like you go to trial and go, I don't know, is this going to be a good argument? Ooh, boy, that, that prosecuting attorney is really good. I think, he's, I think he really nailed me on that one. You know, it's not about that. You go to court so that you can say, this is the thing, and then you say, okay, well, but he already, the punish, sentence done, punishes, punishment's done, you're, you're acquitted. That's why. So in this sense, this is also confession. State your case that you may be acquitted. Why do you come to confession and confess your sins? Do you confess your sins so that pastor judges you and, you know, pastor keeps his log and marks in, oh, November 28th, well, Morris Heitman confessed this today, and oh my goodness, this is like... I didn't do it. I, uh, I, uh, <laughs> I, I rated an 8.7 out of 10, this sin, you know. No, not at all. You come to confession so that you are acquitted. You come to confess your sins so that the Lord says, hey, I'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. You just go and be a, be a better boy, okay? That's what it's about. Now, let's say this again. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. Put me, remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us contend together. State your case that you may be acquitted. Yes. Where is this written concerning the office of the keys? This is what St. John the Evangelist writes in chapter 20. The Lord Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, 
they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Okay, just very quickly, when the Lord breathes, what is the breath? The Spirit. The, Jesus is the Word, and when he breathes, he breathes the Spirit. So it's not like, remember, my, my example is always David Suchet from the old BBC radio dramatizations of the Chronicles of Narnia, when Aslan breathes on the children and he would go, and that's how they depicted it over the radio. But it isn't like Jesus going and blowing fresh breath on the disciples. It's the Spirit coming upon them, the breath of him speaking the word. When you deliver the word, it comes by the breath. The authority that Jesus delivers, the office of the keys, the office of the ministry, all of this comes by the Spirit in the Word. Uh, word and Spirit are never apart. Uh, they're never apart. They always go together. So when the pastor says, I forgive you your sins, who is the one that is speaking? Jesus, Jesus by the Spirit uh, and through the authority that he has put in the mantle that is on that man who speaks the words, which is why in the Confession and Absolution Liturgy, one of the things the pastor asks is, do you believe that this forgiveness is not my forgiveness but God's? And you say, yes. And if you say, no, I think it's yours, then I stop confession and I, ha I give you a lecture because you don't know what you're doing if you think that I'm the one who's going to forgive you. Because half of you, I don't know if I would. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I love you all. Okay, um, to Sunday school. You may go. Um, I have a few more things I want to say about these. You know, um, some of our evangelical brothers and sisters don't like the idea of confession and absolution. Do you know why it is that they don't? Pardon me? They think it's personal. Personal in what way? That they, that they don't care of it, that they haven't sinned. Oh, well, that's a good answer. Some of them believe they haven't sinned, yes. But m more generally, it, it is a personal thing in that, well, the Lord will take care of my sins. Why am I going to go to this person? If I can just go to Jesus and, and pray to Jesus, hey, forgive me my sins, why do I need to go to this person? And they actually say exactly the same thing that the Pharisees do, which is only God can forgive sins. Which is, a, that, that's, it, it's a troubling way to argue. And listen, I, this, I'm not bashing on the evangelicals here because I have a lot of them in my family that I know and love dearly. And I have a lot of them who are friends. And there are a lot of them in this community that I have a lot of respect for and like. So I'm, I'm not bashing them. But the issue is when you defend your doctrine by saying, well, only God can forgive sins, you're actually arguing like a Pharisee. And there's no worse way to argue than like a Pharisee because Jesus put the Pharisees to shame. If you argue like a Pharisee, Jesus has something to say. I mean, you can look it up. So the question, well, who says that this man, this pastor can forgive sins? According to the catechism, what's the answer? Who, who says that this man, who, who says that this man can forgive sins? I, I know that God, can, only, only God can forgive sins. So who says that this guy can? Hey, yes, exactly. That's the answer. Who says that this man in the vestments can forgive sins? Jesus did. Jesus quite literally said that. Not because the man is so great and so powerful, but because of the office that he holds. It's whose office is it? Yes, but be specific. You've got a one in, you've got a one in three chance. <laughs> right, it's Jesus, it's Jesus' office. The office of the holy ministry is Jesus' office because the ministry does all of the work that Jesus does. And that's one reason why Jesus ascends, because when Jesus ascends and institutes the office of the ministry, all of a sudden, Jesus is not 
going from place to place. He's everywhere. And every time a pastor opens his mouth and speaks, the pastor by the Spirit is, is delivering the words of Jesus. And every time the pastor speaks the verba or speaks the baptismal address, by the Spirit is giving the very thing that it is. So Jesus is now on a big platform talking into a megaphone, and the megaphone is the office of the ministry, which is all of his pastors. So when the pastor speaks the forgiveness of sins, it isn't the individual, it's the office that speaks. There's a big distinction. That's one reason why a pastor vests, so that there's no question about who's the one speaking. Because if I'm just standing up and I'm giving, you know, giving a lecture, or I'm presenting a paper, or I'm teaching a class, or something like that, do I need to be vested? No. Because I'm, those are my words, that's my study, that's my paper, I wrote that. I, and I'm telling you, and it's, a, it's about my ideas and my study and what I think it means, and so I'll do all of that. But when it comes to administering the sacraments and preaching and doing all of that kind of work, in order to tell you that there's a difference between me giving a lecture and me giving a sermon, the vestments come into play because it isn't me, it's Christ. That's also why a pastor wears a collar uh, because when the pastor speaks according to the office, you can know that those are Christ's words because pastor doesn't get, I don't get to tell you my words. I only get to tell you Jesus' words. I'm a slave to Christ, okay? So who says that the pastor forgives sins? Jesus did. But it really isn't the pastor, it's the office of the ministry. Just like it's not the pastor who does the baptism, it's not the pastor who speaks the verba and consecrates. It's the Lord who does all of that through the office. Okay? That's a very important distinction. If we said, oh yes, the pastor does forgive sins, then we would rightly receive criticism because that would be wrong. Only God can forgive sins. Uh, so the authority that he has to forgive sins is in Christ, and Christ puts it in the office of the ministry so that through those channels, he can continue doing it, okay? Um, this, is, this other thing is just that, back to the verses of the week, um, I have more to say about that. When Judgment Day comes, people think that we're going to be afraid of Judgment Day. And sure, we say there'll be fear and trembling and all of that. And to some degree, yes. I mean, what, what do you do when you see the Lord in all his unbridled, uninhibited glory for the first time? It's not like, you know, uh, you know the baseball player Yogi Berra? There was a really, I think I've said this before, but he was in an interview once and they said, oh, uh, Yogi, well, we heard that you met the Pope. What did you think about that? And he said, oh, well, you know, that was, that was an interesting experience. It was, it was kind of weird. He, he acted like he knew me. And the reporter said, well, what do you mean? How, how did he act like he knew you? He said, well, when I walked in the room, he said, well, hello, Yogi. And the reporter said, well, what did you say? And he said, well, I didn't know what to say, so I just said, well, hi, Pope. <laughs> it's like, you know that you don't walk into the Pope and go, oh, hi, Pope. Like, the reason that you laughed at that is because you, it's so ridiculous. So when Jesus comes, it's not like you're going to go, oh, well, there you are. Hi, Jesus, how are you? I mean, it's, it's not going to be flippant like that when Christ comes back. Sure, you'll have joy, but the earth is going to tremble, the archangels are going to come, and, I mean, you're going to see realities that you've only seen shadows of and faint glimmers and traces of and all of a sudden you're going to see it all, and sure, in that sense, there will be some fear and trembling, Morris. We, we see through a glass darkly, and then we will see it face to face. Yes. Yeah, but it's, but it's accurate. So the closest that you can get to heaven in this life is at the altar, receiving the body and the blood. And the liturgy tells you all of that. I'm not, that's not even me. That's the liturgy. Because what do we say in the proper preface? With angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven. And then we sing the Sanctus, which is the song of the entire company of heaven. And then we believe in something called the communion of saints, which includes the fact that when you go up, there's people in... Indiana and Texas and 
Maine and Canada and South America and uh, Russia and England and Turkey and Australia and any other place that you can possibly think of, all with you, all coming to the same altar, all receiving the same body and the blood, and it's the same lamb who's on your altar that is the lamb who sits in heaven. And when you go up to that altar to receive the body and blood, your toes are right on that line and there's that one little veil and you all, the best that you can possibly see is shadowy figures moving on the other side, but you can't see what they are and you can't get through. So that's as close as you can get here, which is seeing only dimly. Um, you know, veiled under things like bread and wine. When you, when you see Christ, you're going to see his flesh and blood for what it really is. You're going to see the Spirit's work for what it really is, apart from him needing to come to you in, you know, in water. Everything is unbridled, unveiled, unloosed, unstopped. It's just, bam, this is how it is. So, uh, but people are afraid because they think, well, what am I going to say? When I go to give my account, what am I going to say? When I go to plead my case, what am I going to say? When, well, I'm going to look at Jesus in the face. What am I going to say to him? The cross is going to be there. He's going to know. Yeah, well, Christ comes back and he has his wounds in his hands and in his side and in his feet. Those are eternal wounds. He's going to come back in the flesh. You're going to see all that. What more do you have to say? Right, I mean, that's really your, what, what is it that you're going to say when Christ comes? You're going to be St. Thomas. You're going to say, my God and my Lord. What, what, what is there that you need to give an account of when Christ is already the one who's given the account and you've been acquitted? So Christians don't have anything to fear from Judgment Day um, in that sense. Now, this is, this is sort of the comedic thing that I wanted to say, but I didn't think the kids would get it. So when we talk about the Lord not remembering your sins um, and you pleading your case so that they can be wiped away, what's going to happen on Judgment Day is young Frankenstein. You know, the Mel Brooks movie. Because he's going to look at you and you're going to look at him and you're going to say, I got these sins. And he's going to say, like Igor, what sins? No, what, wasn't your hump on the other shoulder? What hump? Well, you're going you're gonna to say, I, I'm a poor sinner. I have these sins. Aren't you going to punish me for my sins? And all he's going to say is, huh, what sins? And that's how it's going to be. Isn't that a comforting thought? See, now that's grace. That when you can go there and look at your Lord and have him, have him say, huh, I don't see any sins here. You're on the nice list. <laughs> okay. Right, any questions about any of that? Okay. So we need to talk a little about original sin today. That was my promise at the end of last week. Um, just sort of as review and as jumping off point, who, who brings about the fall? Who brings about the fall? The fall of man, Genesis chapter 3. Who brings about the fall? Okay, Adam and Eve, yes. Who sins first? Wrong. Yes, and this is, and this is, yeah. So this is, this is the point that I wanted to make. And I don't remember if I said it here or if I said it in the Ladies' Guild Bible study because I talk a lot and then I can't remember who I talk to or what I say. So if I've already said this, just you know, forgive the broken record here. But there is a, a, a misconception about how Christian, even among Christians, about how the fall takes place and, and what brings about the fall and all of this. And the misconception comes from the perceived order of events in the fall narrative and from the order that the Lord speaks to 
the characters involved in the garden after the fact. And what I mean by that is there is this popular but false and misguided opinion that the fall is caused by Eve. And that Eve then tempts her husband and that she pulls him down. And there is, I'll, I'll tell you this story. When I was in college, I have a, I have a minor in classics, in classical studies, um, which is not music, which people get confused about when I say, well, I was a music performance major and I have, a, I have a minor in classical studies. And they say, oh, like classical music? And I say, no, <laughs> like classical history. So um, my minor was um, focused on Greco-Roman history and um, with an emphasis on the Greek side of things, but I took a lot of, of the Roman stuff too. And I had a class that was on mythology, myth and mythology of ancient Greece. And we had a whole discussion session where the TA came in and we were instructed that what we had to do was compare different fall narratives from mythology. And of course, the big one from Greek mythology, do you know what it is? Actually, I shouldn't, I shouldn't uh, expect that you do know what it is. Do you happen to know the big fall narrative from Greek mythology? Pandora. Pandora's box, you know that? I think it's Prometheus is the, Prometheus um, gets on the bad end of the gods because he delivers fire to man. And uh, so they get angry at him because he, what, and what that fire is, is he gives man a soul, creatures of clay. Um, there's this um, whole hierarchy, but anyway, so he gives them fire, he gives them soul and reason and thought, and the gods get angry because now there are things like us. So that's red flag number one, when the gods say, we're angry because now there are creatures that are like us. Because it couldn't be any more opposite of what the Judeo-Christian God says, which is, I delight in creating a creature that is like me. In fact, I want them to be like me. I want them to be in my image and likeness. So um, I want to be reflected in them. And the Greek gods say, we don't want to be reflected in them. We want to reflect ourselves. So anyway, what happens is Prometheus is punished. <clears throat> I believe this is how it goes. Prometheus is punished by being chained to a rock. And then every day, he's immortal, so he can't die. So every day, an eagle comes and eats his liver as punishment. So every day, he has to endure that. And he can't break the chains. And then I think Hercules ends up coming and smashing the chains and setting him free and gets in trouble. But anyway, that's beside the point. The other thing that happens is, as a punishment to man is that the, the gods create woman. How does it feel, women? You're just a big old punishment to men. And they create this woman named Pandora who is extremely beautiful but who is extremely dumb. <laughs> and that's the punishment. And then she gets a box. He gives a box and he says, if this box is ever opened, all kinds of evils will pour out of this box and flood the world and you will never be able to get rid of them. So don't ever open the box. And Pandora goes, oh, a pretty box. I'll open it. And the woman opens the box and lets in all the evil things. And that's why women are inferior and stupid and bad. So pay attention. Okay. So, that, <laughs> so that's, that's, the, that's the Greek narrative of the fall, Pandora's box, that this dumb woman opens the box and then everybody goes, doggone it, you woman, look what you did. And then Pandora's sins are carried down in womankind. Doggone it, you dumb women, look what you did. Life would be a whole lot better if it weren't for you because way back when, you're the one that caused all this, okay? So we get in and we look at that narrative. And then she says, now let's look at a Bible narrative from the book of Genesis chapter 3. And let's compare these two. 
because you really realize that the Bible is just based on mythology and it's all misogynistic because it hates women, which is laughable uh, because a woman gave birth to God. I didn't see no man giving birth to God. In fact, if you want to talk about strong, independent women, the Blessed Virgin Mary is at the top tier because she didn't have help from a man. Uh, so you, you know I'm a big board game nerd and I browse Kickstarter and you know all these independent game producers and all that. And I was browsing a few weeks ago and I found this. T I've, I've expressed my concern about this before, but how divination decks and oracle decks and pagan things, witchcraft and tarot cards, things like that are exploding and everybody wants them and everybody's interested in them. Well, there was one of these called the Blessed Virgin Mary Oracle and Tarot Deck. And I thought, what? Something doesn't jive here. So I clicked on it just to look. And it began with a sentence, oh, you're going to love this, because I sure did. The Blessed Virgin Mary isn't just for Christians. She's for all of us as a strong and independent woman and as a mystic who really had deeper connections to her divine nature and the divine natures that permeate in all creation. She had a connection with the spirits. So everybody can claim her as their mother, including the pagans. And in fact, the pagans ought to claim her and worship her and cast spells in the name of Mary and have divination decks that tap into the power of, of the Virgin Mary. And I read all of that and I thought, I didn't think that it could get any worse. And of course, the Lord in his nice sense of humor always shows me how it gets worse when I think it can't. And I just thought, you know, how strange, but this just goes to show you, even the pagans are willing to accept the Blessed Virgin Mary as a strong, independent woman. But anyway, so you look at this and you say, oh, well, the Bible's misogynistic because they say the exact same thing as the Greeks do in their myth about Pandora's box. And that is, if the woman hadn't eaten the fruit, none of this would have happened. And, the, and Adam even says it himself because God says, what happened? And he says, well, it's this woman's fault. She did it. Oh, you see that? Well, you know, I probably shouldn't have done this, but I had some words in that class and then we ended the discussion and went to something else because nobody had anything that they could say. You don't pull something like that with somebody who actually knows what the Bible says. You just look like an idiot if that's really what you think the Bible says. So let's talk about that. Why is there a difference? What's the difference between Pandora, dumb woman caused sin, and the Bible? Oh, Eve ate the fruit, told her, so the husband said, well, she did it, it's her fault. He was there. Okay, he was there, but why does that matter? Okay, but why does that matter? Yes, that's what it is. What was that? Because he is responsible for her. Because he is the one who is supposed to watch over her. He is the one that is supposed to protect her. And above all else, he is the one that is supposed to preach the word of God to her. So it's actually the complete opposite. So the question is not... Who falls? Because Adam falls. Actually, Adam falls before Eve takes the fruit and eats it because in shirking his duties as husband and his even more important duties as pastor, because Adam is the first pastor, he's the one that has the word of the Lord and whose job it is to preach the word of the Lord in the garden. That's, by the way, how, if you ever wondered, when Eve's, the serpent asks Eve, did God really say, did you ever stop and wonder, well, how does Eve know that God said it? Because God gave that word to Adam before Eve was created. How does Eve know that? Because her husband preached to her the word of God. So 
there in the garden, even before she takes the fruit, when she starts thinking to herself, oh, this is really good, and when the serpent of old starts attacking the word of God, the one person who is supposed to defend both his wife and the word of God does neither. And then not only shirks his own duties, but commits the sin. St. Paul does not say that all mankind falls in Eve's sin. What does he say? In Adam's sin, right? We even have a hymn about that. Um, I remember in one of my music history classes, in fact, Bach wrote a piece, I think, Durch Adam's Fall, something like that. And it's a piece of music for the organ that is supposed to sound like Adam's fall in the garden, which is kind of neat. So there's a lot of slithering because he, he plays on the organ and makes the organ sound like a snake and does this. And it's just, a, I'll have to see if I can find it and play it for you. It's kind of cool. I like that stuff. When, when music sounds like something and then you get a picture from hearing the music without looking at a picture, like how, do you, how do you take music and, and make music sound like a sunset? I don't know, but some composers do, and you hear the music and you picture a sunset, and they're just geniuses. Richard Strauss, one, he's in my top 10 composers. Much to my mother's chagrin. <laughs> I only say that because I know she's going to hear it, and then she's going to call me. Well, I think he's just fine. Um, <laughs> uh, see, I'm far away from home, but I can still have fun. Richard Strauss did a lot of com compositions called tone poems, is what he called them. These big, sprawling, long orchestral pieces with more instruments than he needed, which makes it all that much more fun. And these big tone poems were just that. In music and in sounds, would paint a picture of something that he wanted you to see. And one of my favorites is Ein Alpine Symphony, which is the, his tone poem that paints a picture of a whole day in the Alps. And it starts with the sunrise, and it's beautiful, but he was not a humble man, and in fact, he bragged about his tone poems, and he said, I can describe anything with music. In fact, if you asked me to, I'd describe to you a silver spoon just by playing you a song. So, <laughs> anyway, that's tone poems. So anyway, so they're in the garden. Who falls first? Adam falls first. In, in Adam, all mankind falls. In one man, all man falls. That's what St. Paul writes. And that's important. Why? Because who's the counterpart to Adam? I'm talking typology now. So the, the answer should not be Eve. The typology means something that prefigures another thing. So Jonah is a type of who? Christ. Christ, right, exactly. So that's typology. There's a type, which is like a preview of someone who looks like but isn't, and the antitype, which is the very thing itself. So uh, the counterpart or the antitype to Adam is who? According to St. Paul. No? Jesus. Yes. <laughs> you were ready to go. <laughs> I love it. Yes. Jesus is the antitype to Adam. So Adam is literally Adam, man, and Jesus is the new man. So everything that Jesus is, or excuse me, everything that Adam is supposed to be, Jesus is. Why do you think Jesus is taken to the wilderness to endure temptations? Why do you think the very first temptation, and you know, Matthew and Luke have a different ordering, but they don't mess with the ordering of the first. It's the second two that they flip-flop. But it's the first temptation that is the same. Why do you think the first temptation is, hey, eat? Doesn't this look good to eat? Think about that for just one minute. Christ has to show that he's 
Christ, Christ has to be what Adam can't be, which is then why St. Paul says, in one man, just as in one man all mankind fell, in one man, Jesus Christ, all man is saved. All man is raised up. All man is given life. So there is one man who fails, and in one man all man falls, and there is one man who doesn't fail and who in fact rises, and in that one man all mankind rises. Jesus had the strength to reject it, where Adam would not have been had the strength. Mm -hmm. in, in some sense, yes. Adam, Adam made a choice. Um, part, of the, part of what's important about Jesus is not so much that he had the strength to do it. You know, like God creates this limp-wristed man and says, now you go in the garden and preach the gospel, and then the serpent comes and he goes, oh, no, what am I supposed to do? I'm going to eat the fruit. You know, it's not like Adam is some weak, limp-wristed, timid man, but it is that Adam chooses not to be what he's made to be. What he's made to be is Adam, man. When God speaks, it is. That's why, you know, man and woman are important. You are man, and what is man? Man is the protector, the one who cares for, who loves and who cherishes, who doesn't let harm befall, and the one who, in the way that we would say it now, the, the head of the household, or like, you're... Luther writes this in his commentary in Genesis, I think commentary on Genesis 16. He says that uh, every husband, father, every husband and father is the priest in his own chapel that is his home. Uh, so in that sense, every man takes after Adam in having the responsibility of proclaiming the word of God and ensuring that in, within his home, it is taught in its truth and purity. And uh, that also was forsaken by Adam, choosing not to do that. St. John's has two doors. The men went in one door under the big bell, and the women went under in the door under the smaller little part. They were separated in the sanctuary because the men had to listen to the pastor learn everything that he was supposed to learn, then he would go home and teach it to his wife and children. I like the idea. I like the you know, philosophy of that. I just don't like the idea of breaking the family up in church. I guess I'm a weird old school guy in some ways and more progressive in others. But, um, but anyway, so in one man they fall, in another man they, uh, a man rises. Adam, it's not so much that Adam is weak and Jesus is strong, although that's certainly what it becomes, because after the fall, Adam is weak. Adam is weak to do anything. Um, and, and in fact, in Adam, all of you are weak to do anything to save yourselves, which is why Christ has to be the one who is strong, because he has to save you. So then when he preaches, or yeah, when he teaches the parable about um, after they say, well, you're casting out demons by the power of demons. You've got Satan in you, or, or Beelzebub is in you. And he says, a house divided against a house can't stand. Why, do you, why, why would Satan do that to himself? Um, there's a strong man who guards his house, but the strong man who guards his house isn't any good to the house if someone stronger has come in and bound him. Well, who's the strong man? Satan. Death. Devil. All of that, that's the strong man. But who's the stronger man who comes in to bind them hand and foot? It's Christ. See, so in that sense, yes, Christ is strong, but it's not, not the comparison of when God made Adam, Adam just wasn't strong enough, so he sent Jesus. Because then that's like Jesus is the backup plan, and I don't, I don't like anything that makes it seem like Jesus is the backup plan. Because um, that, get, that gets into dangerous territory. So... Then the question is, well, we know that Adam actually is the one that is responsible for the fall, and nowhere in Scripture is Eve ever mentioned as being the one who caused the fall. That's the other thing. If you're a pagan, one, you'll never understand the Bible, no matter how hard you study, because the Bible is a... The Bible what? 
The Bible is a... Who does the Bible belong to? Uh, uh. It's his word, but that's not... Uh. Who, does it, who does it belong to? The Believers. And what would we call the giant gathering, the community of believers? Yeah, yeah, the whole church. Okay, capital C church. So the Bible is a church book. The Bible, the word of God belongs to the church. If you are not of the church, if you are not of Christ, if you're not in the ark, does it make any sense to you? Can you have it in the same way that the Christian does? No, you can't. It's a church book. It's not an academic book. You know, I've got a book on one of my top shelves. I think it's on, not, maybe not the top top, but one of the upper shelves called The Skeptic's Bible, which is a really, I mean, I think it's a good laugh. I think it's a right and a half because it's this very intelligent man who basically went through the Bible and then cataloged all of the inconsistencies. Oh, you should see the Old Testament, all the places where there's bloodshed. And he says, well, God's a God of love and peace. He doesn't want war. But here he says to kill everybody. That's not Christian. That's, the Bible is going against itself. And you look at that and you say, if you want to know what a pagan and somebody outside the church thinks of the Bible, that's it. And it's so funny because they're just taking it at face value, but they don't see anything of what the Bible actually says and means. Why does God command the death of, of those pagans in, um, in Canaan? There's lots of reasons. Can you think of one? Okay, they, yes, what happens when you go away from believing? What do you do? Do you live a pious life? Sure, yeah, you go against the Lord, you worship idols. Why does the Lord want all the idols and the altars and stuff destroyed? <laughs> you know? Sure, uh, they perform child sacrifice. Well, it's all fine and dandy for them to perform child sacrifice, but it's not fine and dandy for the Lord to want to put them to death. Why would the Lord want to put them to death? Who is vengeance? Who does vengeance belong to? The Lord. And who do you think the Lord might possibly be taking vengeance for? All the blood of the children that cry out to him. You know, there's a part of, there's a part of um, the structure around Jerusalem, one of those valleys... Um, is the valley, literally, they would, it was the refuse valley. That's where they would go and burn all their trash. But that's also where they would throw the bodies of the children and then, and then burn them. They'd kill the babies and then throw them out there. It's a place of blood. It's a place of, of the death of children. It's, it's all of this. So then when the Lord comes in and says, you have sinned against my people, Vengeance is mine. They cry out to me for justice, and I am going to bring it to you. And you say, oh, but God doesn't love. Let me ask you this. Does anyone blame? This is, uh, let, me, let me do it this way. This is a true story from the news. A father took his little girl to the bathroom in a public restroom, and there was a man who th wanted to pretend that he was a woman, who, or excuse me, yeah, something, some, something like that. They were somewhere, and there was a man who, who pretended that he was a woman who was there who started touching this guy's daughter inappropriately right there in a public place, and that dad jumped the guy and beat him up. Now, I know that the mothers here would feel the same way, but I'm going to ask this question particularly of the men here. Can you blame that dad? No. Yeah. no. <laughs> Confession time, I probably would have done the same thing. Now, but I thought that the dad loved his little girl. Why would he do something like that if he was loving? Why would he beat somebody up if he's such a good, kind, caring, compassionate, loving man? Because that word was out of place. Pardon me? Because he loves his dog. 
Yes, because he loves his daughter. God loves everybody, but God has children, and God loves his children. What do you as parents Where do you draw the line about things that you will and won't do for your child? Where do you say, well, I'll go this far, but no further? What is it that you won't do for your child? Nothing. You'd fight the devil himself for your child. That's love. When God hears his dear children crying out to him for vengeance, he takes vengeance because he loves his children. God loves his children. He doesn't love sin. God loves his children. He doesn't love the sinner. God takes vengeance for his people. That's all this. So you look at this. Oh, there's bloodshed here. Okay. The Bible is a church book. So you don't get any of this kind of typology. You You can yell about, oh, the Bible's misogynist because Eve is the one who committed the sin. But then you look at all the rest of the Bible and it all blames Adam. But then the question is, well, okay, so Adam's the one that causes the fall. But then how does Eve fall? Okay, she ate of the fruit, but there's something even deeper than that. Why is it that Eve falls? If we say in one man, that is in Adam, all mankind falls, where does Eve fall? In the fall of her husband. And then there's, we get to this thing called original sin, which is sin that you have, that you have inherited. Why do you have that? Why do you suffer for the sin of your father? Why does your flesh fall when Adam falls? This is the big question. This is the question I've been driving at with this talk on sin. It comes to this question. Why does your flesh fall in Adam's fall? Why are you still held accountable for something that he did so long ago? (laughs) (laughs) Whose, Whose flesh do you have? Adam's. In the words of the Chronicles of Narnia, you are... Uh, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. Adam is man, and from Adam comes all. When Adam falls, his progeny are still of his flesh. If he falls, everyone who is a part of him and who will ever come from him falls with him. And Eve comes from him. Do you see this? So why is it then that when Adam procreates with his wife, that a fallen group of kids come out all the way down to you? Why is it that you are still having this issue with original sin? Because you still have the flesh of your father. This is why St. Augustine talks about it and calls it in the Latin a massa damnata, a damned mass of flesh. Or as I typically would translate it, you might have heard this in a sermon once or twice, a damned collective is how I translate it. Because all of your flesh is one. In the sense that you all come from one common father and that that one common father fell and his flesh was corrupted. So every flesh that comes from that flesh is corrupted. Which is another reason why Jesus has to be born of a virgin. Because how is original sin passed on? Because here's another thing, ladies, if you think the Bible is misogynistic, who bears the responsibility for the transmission of original sin? No. The Father. It's the seed of the man that brings the fallen flesh and transmits it. That's why Jesus is the seed of the woman. That's why Jesus is born without sin, because the womb of Mary is purified and there is no transmission of original sin from a father. 
He is not fully, you know, he's not like the flesh of Adam. He's the flesh of God in the flesh of man. So this idea that you are a damned collective of flesh that's all damned because your flesh has its root in that original flesh of Adam. That's what original sin is and that's where it comes from. And that is why you die. Because Adam dies and his, he continues to die, by the way. He continues to die because every time one of his progeny dies, the flesh of Adam dies. He dies and dies and dies and dies because you are your father. That's why we talk about the old Adam. And what would we say, you know, catechism language, who is the old Adam? The sinner. Right, the sinner. Or, or we could say the sinful flesh, too. So your, well, this is the fancy word for it, your concupiscence, which is your inner burning lustful desire to sin. You go, hmm, what do I want to do today? Hmm, I want to sin. I mean, it's maybe not that extreme, but the fact that you can't not sin, you can make a choice today to do one thing or the other, and you can make the conscious effort not to do the sin. In fact, we're in Advent now, which is a penitential season, so there's some fasting and stuff like that for Advent, not as big as Lent, but because it's penitential, one of those reasons is to try and help you to curb some of those issues where you look at yourself and make a better decision about what I ought to be doing and fight sin all the harder. But it's always going to be a fight because it's always there. And you will always do things that you don't want to do. Just listen to St. Paul. Um, so that's the old Adam, which is this flesh and the this concupiscence of the original man. Okay, any quick questions? We're over time. All right, very good. We'll see you at the altar. New hymn next week. It's a good one. Very exciting.